0: And welcome to fantastic history i'm sarah and i'm clay we're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events people and mysteries throughout history for those of you out there in radio land one thing that clay loves is when scammers get their comeuppance
1: yeah so
0: there's this um what's the name of that one youtube channel that you watch
1: yeah his name is uh kit boga
0: I mean all the time. You're you're yeah. watching this um like pretty much every day.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's something that's easy to binge. Right? Um especially when you're at work. Okay. Uh if you're in a job that, you know, allows such a thing.
0: Fair. Well, this episode is going to be a special treat for you, honey, because have I got a scammer for you. Wow. Yeah. So needless to say, the internet has made it a lot easier to con people. Like, just look to the famous Nigerian prince scam from the early email Mm -hmm. days. Oh, yeah. But scammers have been around for pretty much as long as there have been people. Today, I want to talk about my all-time favorite, Mr. Taylor, a.k.a. James J. O'Brien a.k.a. Warden Kennedy, a.k.a. George C. Parker. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to you gotta have backups, man. You don't want to give out your real name. Sure. The son of Irish immigrants, George Parker, was born in March of 1860 in New York City, and he was one of eight children. At that point in time, New York was mostly known for being like a vital port city, particularly after the opening of the Erie Canal in the 1820s. It was also the first stop for just about anyone immigrating to America, so there was a massive influx of European immigrants during the 1800s because of the potato famine in Ireland and the Deutsche Revolution in Germany. For these reasons, New York had overtaken Philadelphia as the most populous city in the country all the way back in 1790. Mm. But the population continued to grow at an unbelievable rate, hitting over 1 million citizens by 1880. That's a lot. That's, I mean, for that early, like 1880, for there to be over a million people living in New York City alone, like that kind of blew my mind. Yeah. But with that boom, the city limits started to spread in all directions, which is how Manhattan, the Bronx, Staten Island, Queens, and Brooklyn ended up becoming five boroughs instead of five individual cities.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. So with that came a need to make pedestrian travel between those boroughs easier without clogging up the East River with ferry boats, hence the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm. George was 23 years old when the bridge opened to the public on May 24th, 1883. The opening of the bridge was a huge deal. Thousands of people turned up for the opening of the bridge, including then President Chester A. Arthur. It was a huge party, complete with fireworks, live music, and celebratory cannon fire. As for why it was such a big deal, not only did it connect Manhattan and Brooklyn, but at the time, this was the longest bridge in the world. Wow. By about like 20 to 25%. Dang. Oh, yeah. Huge deal. It became one of the most recognizable sites for immigrants arriving in New York City, second only to the Statue of Liberty. hmm More than 150,000 people crossed the bridge on opening day, but the first to cross was Emily Warren Roebling. I want to do a sidebar for a second to talk about Emily because she's a badass. Her father-in-law, John A. Roebling, designed the Brooklyn Bridge and her husband, Washington, supervised construction as the chief engineer. He was so committed to his job that he was frequently doing underwater inspections on the caissons and ended up developing compression sickness, so the bends, Yeah, which left him bedridden from 1870 onward. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Emily, though, was like, you know what? Let's keep it in the family. And she stepped into the position as the chief engineer in her husband's place. Ooh. Yeah. She picked up a lot like just from having visited the site several times throughout her husband's tenure as chief. But for a while she was basically just relaying messages back and forth from the site to her husband and vice versa. Cause they had an apartment that kind of overlooked the site so he could kind of keep an eye on what was going on. And he, you know, Oh, tell them they're doing this wrong or whatever. She was a super fast learner though. And for over a decade, she was handling the chief engineer's duties entirely by herself both the overall management of the project as well as the day-to-day duties. Emily was so good at her job that rumors started swirling that she had actually been the one to design the bridge in the first place. <laughs> that her father-in-law and husband had basically been her puppets because, hello, it's the 1800s. And obviously people wouldn't just hop on board with a woman engineer architect. Right. Like the horror. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's why Emily got to be the first pedestrian to cross the bridge, because it was her bridge. That's cool. In the opening ceremony, Speaker Abram Hewitt honored her by calling the Brooklyn Bridge an everlasting monument to the sacrificing devotion of a woman and of her capacity for that higher education from which she has been too long disbarred. Basically, this is now an Emily Warren Roebling fan account.
1: Sorry. (laughs) He's sneaking this in.
0: But back to George C. Parker's story. Needless to say, the Brooklyn Bridge was one of the most expensive municipal projects ever undertaken, coming in at a whopping $15.5 million in 1883 money. Dang. So close to uh, like half a billion today.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
0: To offset that cost, the city planned to charge a toll to cross. It was $0.01 for a pedestrian, $0.05 for a person on horseback, and $0.10 for a horse pulling a cart. Even adjusting for inflation, it's not even a dollar per person. It's very, very cheap, like totally reasonable. They didn't put up the pedestrian toll booths on the upper level of the bridge right away, although the booths on the lower level were in place from day one. So if you're not familiar with the Brooklyn Bridge, it's a two-decker bridge, The lower level today is for vehicles and the upper level is still a pedestrian bridge. So back then, upper level, pedestrian, lower level, a horse and or a horse and buggy. Okay. But the fact that they had the toll booths only on the bottom and they hadn't put them on the top yet was what gave George his most brilliant idea. Now, it's worth mentioning that George was a high school graduate. Why is that notable? Well, because at the time, only about 3% of Americans finished high school and only about 50% of children went to school at all. Wow. Yeah. So this equipped him with uncommon book smarts in addition to his street smarts, which makes for a formidable con man. And especially considering that he targeted immigrants who were new to the United States. George wasted no time. Just a few months after the bridge opened, he struck up a conversation with a European immigrant he met at the base of the bridge on the Manhattan side. For ease of storytelling, we'll call this other guy Mark because that's what he was. (laughs) When George mentioned being a native New Yorker, Mark started peppering him with questions about the bridge. And then Mark was like, well, holy crap, how do you know so much about all of this? And George is like, well, because this is my bridge. I'm the builder and the owner. But I got to tell you, managing this thing has become a real pain, especially because of all the tolls and stuff. I'd much rather move on to my next bridge project. He went on to explain that since the pedestrian toll booths hadn't been installed yet, whoever was willing to take the bridge off his hands would be able to build the booths themselves and collect the revenue from the tolls. And Mark, God bless him, was like, I know a smart investment opportunity when I hear one. I'll (laughs) take it i'm not sure how much george made off of his first scam but as soon as money changed hands mark started putting up toll booths it didn't take long for the police to show up and remove the booths in the process letting mark know he got got yeah yeah
1: (laughs) though i like i like that he's like immediately Uh uh-huh immediately getting to work
0: you don't want to waste any time you want to start earning that money back you just paid yeah You you got the American dream you just got here? Like, that's amazing. (laughs) Now, it's not quite as absurd as it seems that there might be a private owner of the Brooklyn Bridge. Like, that sounds ludicrous. But it's not entirely. So the funds to build it had come not only from the city of New York and the city of Brooklyn, but also from William M. Tweed, more commonly known as Boss Tweed, the leader of the Tammany Hall Political Association. Now, if the names Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall sound familiar to you, it's probably because they were featured prominently in the movie Gangs of New York, which is a particular favorite of mine. Ah. It was well known at the time that Boss Tweed was an investor in the bridge. So if you knew enough about the bridge to question whether it could be purchased in the first place, then you probably knew that there actually was a guy with part ownership. Maybe it's this guy. I mean, who knows? Now, that first time around was kind of just lucky. George just so happened to get into conversation with someone who believed his bullshit. But going forward, though, he decided to be a little more discerning. And for that, he would need a crew. To that end, he bribed a few of the guys manning the ferries from the immigration offices on Ellis Island. Those men would find out who on board had more cash than brains and strike up a conversation with them about this amazing investment opportunity they'd just heard about. They would then refer them to Parker, who had set up an office near the New York end of the bridge. Once at the office of George C. Parker, they would be presented with very official-looking paperwork, including the deed to the bridge, the bill of sale, and other forged documents on formal letterhead. There weren't printers and scanners and copiers back then. So if somebody hands you something with an actual like official letterhead on it, you're going to believe whatever's on this piece of paper. Makes sense to me. Right? Yeah. After some negotiating, the Marks would pay George anywhere between $50 to $5,000. However much George thought he could get from that specific person, Mm. usually based on the information he got from the ferry crew.
1: Just so happens, uh huh. You have a, th- you only got a thousand dollars in your pocket. Well, by God, it's your lucky day. That's the exact amount mm-hmm. that I'm asking.
0: And you know what? You seem like a nice guy, and we'll cut you a deal. Nine hundred. You've still got a hundred in your pocket. You'll make that nine hundred back from the tolls in like what? A week? Mm. Maybe two. Mm. Depending on how much they paid him, they either bought the bridge outright. Or they bought the rights to erect the toll booth on the bridge, and they would give George 20% of their earnings. Inevitably, the deception only lasted until they tried to set up a toll booth, and the police had to be called again. (sighs) When police were then taken to George's office, they were met with a totally vacant space. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, he used a series of aliases in this venture. He did not leave any kind of trail. Dang. Uh Uh-huh. When business was slow, he would go so far as to place a for sale sign on the bridge itself and wait for some poor sap to ask about it. (laughs) But he had to do this carefully because there were policemen who walked the link of the bridge. As soon as the officer on duty started his walk from the New York side, George put up the for sale sign, which included the address of his office. He then left the sign up for about an hour, which is how long it takes to walk the bridge from one side to the other and come back. And then he would take it down just before the policemen arrived to restart the loop. Yeah. It's estimated that over a 40-year period, because yes, he kept the scheme going for 40 years. Wow. George sold the Brooklyn Bridge no less than 4,160 times or about twice a week. That is crazy. Uh Uh-huh. But he wasn't content to just sell the Brooklyn Bridge over and over for all that time. His second most infamous scam was selling the tomb of Ulysses S. Grant (laughs) posing as Grant's grandson. He would approach his investors like, like I'm this, I'm his grandson. I'm the only one left. And he would explain that like he didn't have the money. So it was either, he doesn't have the money to finish building the tomb. He doesn't have the money to repair the tomb or he doesn't have enough to, to fund its upkeep. Okay. Now, because Grant was known as the hero of the Union during the Civil War and fam the Civil War was not that long ago when this was going on. Right. Of course people were happy to empty their pockets if it meant honoring the general. So they'd give him this money that was supposed to go towards Grant's tomb. Wow. And of course he has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with that.
1: That that, that that's a bit more um I mean it's all bad. It's
0: all bad. This is very gross.
1: It's pretty tasteless.
0: It's gross. Yeah. But even that wasn't enough. And he also managed to sell Madison Square Garden, the Metropolitan Museum of Art and its contents, and the Statue of Liberty many, many times. On a smaller scale, he would sometimes sell the rights to popular plays and musicals with which he had absolutely no affiliation. My God. Uh Uh-huh. So how did he never get caught? Sure, he was definitely taking some precautions by moving the offices around and timing when he put up his for sale sign and stuff. But like nobody's perfect. George was actually arrested and convicted of fraud no less than four times. But every time he got out of jail, he went right back to one of his cons.
1: Oh, man. every
0: time. After one of his arrests in 1907, he was able to add escape artists to his list of criminal skills. He was being held in the Raymond Street Jail over the holidays and decided he didn't want to start the new year behind bars like New Year, New Me. Like, sets a bad precedent. Yeah. As visitors were coming and going from the jail, he noticed that Sheriff Flaherty had left his hat and his uniform coat lying on a nearby chair. When the room was particularly crowded and chaotic, George donned the hat and the coat and headed for the door. One of the guards saw him leaving, but they thought it was the sheriff and called out Happy New Year as George strolled out to freedom. (laughs) Just walked right out. 20 years later, though, his luck finally ran out. In November of 1928, at the age of 68, George was arrested for cashing a bad check. And because of his prior criminal record, he received a life sentence in Sing Sing
1: a life sentence for a bad check.
0: A bad check after all that other stuff he did. It was it was a $150 check that got oh, him. Oh
1: man, why is it always the um these little things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Same like with Al Capone. It's yeah. crazy. You can't get him on the big stuff, so you take what you can get, I guess. I guess so. So the normally charming gregarious George was noted as being understandably despondent as he was led out of the courtroom that final time. He died behind bars just eight years later. Mm. And if you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you. Hey! Wait a minute. He's All of that was true, okay. but he is the origin of that expression. <laughs> so if you like, you ever hear somebody saying that to a gullible person, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you. They're talking about George Barker.
1: That is too funny.
0: Yeah, I, I love that story. I love him so much. I just think that's wonderful.
1: Yeah, I mean, <sighs> fake it till you make it,
0: <laughs> or until you get busted.
1: Until you get busted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, did do you know how much he made over his lifetime? I
0: couldn't find a total because he wasn't exactly like keeping a bill of sale every time sure. and that's not what he got busted for. Yeah. So it's not in like I was combing through old newspaper articles that I was able to find online and I was never able to get an actual total. Okay. But I mean, think of it this way, the minimum he ever sold the bridge for. So just the bridge was $50. So if he only ever sold it for the minimum over 4,000 times, he made at least like what, two hundred thousand dollars just from the bridge? Yeah. So he, I mean, he must have made millions.
1: Well, back in uh, back then, that, oh, that would yeah. have been very comfortable.
0: Uh, very comfortable. Like it's only been like a couple decades since the Civil War, and you have a minimum of a quarter million dollars. Like yeah, yeah. You're, you're probably just fine.
1: That's wild stuff, man. <laughs> yes, it is. That is wild stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: I hope you enjoyed that, even though he never got scammed. As a scammer, which I know is what you enjoy. Um, I do. I hope you still liked George's little biography.
1: I loved it.
0: Well, guys, I hope you loved it, too. Uh, Thanks for tuning in and spending some time with us today. Uh, Take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. Um, Just a reminder that leaving a review that says absolutely anything at all does help us more than just hitting the five-star rating. Um, Also, check us out on Instagram and threads. We're at Fantastic Pod on both. You can also shoot us a message at FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com if you know of any amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history that you'd like us to cover on the show, or if you just want to say hi. Until next time.